The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, at this time of year, we rightly think of the manger. We think of the nativity scene. And last week we began, we began John chapter 1, and we noted that John in his prologue does not include any of that. So no angels, no shepherds, no Joseph, no two years later with the wise men. Instead, his prologue, verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1, is a table of contents that gets at the truth of Christmas. And I would hate if we thought, oh no, that's dry doctrine. <laughs> It's, it's actually the furthest thing from that. This is the precise language condensed for us that unlocks and changes lives when it's properly understood. It's like an engineer who's been working on a project and is missing an algorithm. And he needs this precise language to come together to unlock what all of it means and all of its implications are. And John uses that language here. In John 1, verses 1 through 18. A prologue is like a table of contents. As I said last Sunday, this is the best table of contents ever written. And so verses 14 through 18 are what we'll focus on today. And that is, the word became flesh. That's the title of today's sermon taken exactly from verse 14. So John 1, if you are using the Pew Bible, again, it's page 1053. We're looking at two things from the text and I think they're on the screen for you. The Word became flesh. That's verse 14. The Word makes God known. That's verses 15 through 18. And to make it easier for you to follow along, I'll just tell you up front, verse 14 will go very slowly on because it has truth that isn't alluded to later in the book. It's sort of right here. You need it right here. And then verses 15 through 18 will go a little faster on, so don't feel wearied if we're still in verse 14 after a certain amount of time. A couple things about the text itself that I want you to think about up front. If you're newer today, maybe you haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible, uh, you're unfamiliar with church, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to know that a, a, a bit of the wording in verse 14 sounds strange. It just sounds like something you've never heard before. The word became flesh. What is that referring to? Also, I'll point out to you that even if you've been here, you've spent a lot of time in the Bible, John's language at one level appears very simple, but at another level, there's a lot more going on with it. So let me explain both of those. If a lot of the language today sounds strange, a word becoming flesh, are you saying the metaphysical became physical? Are you saying myth became fact? The ideal became real? That's exactly right. The wording sounds strange because it's, spectacular. It's beyond the hopes of the everyday, which is why it sounds so otherworldly. Also, though, if you've read John many times, the language, though at one level, appears very straightforward. At another level, there are depths and illusions and callbacks that readers of the Bible will really appreciate. This is always the blessing between knowing something at a simple level and knowing something at a more advanced level. For example, I know nothing about bacon, but I find something therapeutic over Christmas in watching the great British bacon show. If I was asked to be a judge, I don't know that I could say more than, this is yummy. This, <laughs> I don't have anything else. But when they bring out what temperature you should bake at, 
what spices that I can't pronounce you should mix, uh, they're bringing out advanced information. You can still enjoy the food, but you can know more depths to it if you have that other experience. John 1 is like that. Anybody can read it. It's straightforward. And yet there's more allusions to it and callbacks that help you really appreciate it. It's a little bit like if you're watching a series of movies and you begin at episode 7, for example, you could watch it as a standalone film and and you could follow it. But if you've seen the preceding episodes, well, then you understand why those two characters are looking at each other the way they are and what the illusions are that have preceded this. John 1 is like that, and so I'll, I'll touch on that when we look at those things. So when you read John's simple language, understand this. It is much harder to communicate in simple language than it is to use complex language. And John is a master class at using simple language with a depth of meaning. So John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you're here last week, hopefully you can answer right away what the Word is. But if you weren't, I'll just quickly let you know that in verse 1, the Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through the Word. So here's this pre-existent creator. He's God, and yet he's distinct within the Godhead. He is the light, and he's the life. And here now we read in verse 14, he's become flesh. Him becoming flesh indicates two things that the author wants us to understand. First, that the Word became a real human. If you've been reading the preceding verses, you know the Word has always been God, but the Word has not always been human. At verse 14, now the Word, for the first time, and from this moment forward, also becomes truly human. This is what Christmas is about. The word incarnate means to enflesh. That's what's being referred to here. The word, the eternal one, is now also the human one, God and man, truly both united. But also he's a unique human, because as the verses will go on to say, he's a glorious human, which means he's a human without sin. Now, the other Gospels will make this clear in the narrative of the virgin conception and birth. But in this Gospel, it's at least hinted at in verse 14. We've seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father. So here's a real human. The Word has become flesh, but a human without sin. So why did he take on flesh? What is the accomplishment of God, the eternal Word, the Creator, the preexistent one, entering into creation and becoming human. And verse 14 will tell us. We don't have to guess. It'll show us two things. The Word became flesh to accomplish these two things in verse 14, so that he could dwell among us and so that he could reveal God's glory. The Word became flesh towards these two effects so that he could dwell among us and so that we could behold God's glory. And this is where I'm going to slow down a lot because I think verse 14 has so much that won't come up later in the book. Just the two words, among us, are striking. This is God, the eternal one, the creator, who is now living in humanity as human beings live among us. This week I read about a journalist, Catherine Boo is her name. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. 
And she had written many articles that became internationally known, but then she wanted to write a book on how poor people live. So she moved to a very difficult area of Mumbai, India, and she lived there for three years. While she was living there among the poor, she wanted to live their life. So she got on their level, lived the way they lived, and as she wrote in her book, she observed all the horrible, awful things that you might imagine would happen in a place like that. She saw horrible sickness, tuberculosis. She personally found a sewage lake during her time there. She witnessed the sudden and tragic deaths of three children that she wrote about. She saw sex trafficking happen. She saw awful corruption among the police and government that she tried to appeal to. She witnessed suicide and violence. She intended to live among them to draw a spotlight in hopes that things could get better for them. But as I read this article in The Guardian about her book and her experience, I noticed that in the three years she wanted to live among them, she was unwilling to ever sleep overnight there. And as I thought about that and read the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, I wonder if you've ever thought about God experiencing the indignities of humanity, experiencing the disappointments of life in a cursed world. When you think about Christmas, you should be moved that God who created entered the cursed creation and lived in the frailty of human existence. There is nothing you've ever faced that God is unable to empathize with. The word became flesh to dwell among us. It's unfathomable that God would live like us, but he did. He lived among us, and that is why we can say, along with Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a great high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, but we have one who is able to sympathize with our weakness in every respect, who's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he came to be among us for a purpose that culminated in the cross. Hebrews 2 will say that he was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God he might taste death. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So remember at Christmas that the manger is in the shadow of the cross, that he came among us so that he could experience death for us so that we could receive his life. If someone down the street had a house that was on fire and it was crumbling and collapsing and a neighbor without proper equipment went into the building, even though that was not a previously nice neighbor, he is choosing to become vulnerable, to become killable. That's what God chose when the word became flesh. All right, now the next word, I know I'm focusing on just one word, but I want to focus on the word dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It might seem like a weird word for me to drill in on, but it's the Greek word for tabernacled. And at this point, again, like picking up in episode seven, if you know the previous episodes, you understand all the callbacks that are happening here. In the remainder of verse 14, John is going to use several words that at a simple level are clearly understandable, but at a layered level, refer back to Exodus 32, 33, and 34. 
And this is the first word like that he's going to use, the word dwelt. It's the word tabernacle. The better you know the Bible, the more you understand how important it is that he uses this word. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he tabernacled with Adam and Eve. They walked together in the sanctuary of the Garden of Eden. That tabernacle, that sanctuary, that blessed place where God and man could meet was broken when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled and pushed God away and lived east of Eden. Now, God is so good that it was God's desire to tabernacle with us again. This is Exodus 25, verse 8. This is incredible. Here, second book of the Bible, Exodus 25, verse 8. God said this, Then have them make a tabernacle for me, and I will dwell among them. See how familiar that phrase is to the verse we're in now? It was God's desire to dwell among his people. But if you know anything about the tabernacle that Moses built, you know that it was full of layers that had distance between us and God. Cherubim, altars, curtains, to demonstrate God's holiness has remained perfect, but man's sinfulness has persisted and we are still wicked. And therefore our sin is the reason we cannot dwell with God as we ought. There must then be a way to deal with our sin. And in the tabernacle, of course, there are sacrifices of a lamb. But here in John 1, we read about the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus, friends, is the true tabernacle where God and man can meet. John is focusing on what happens when you understand who Jesus is. Here is the place where God and man meet because God is the one who has pursued and desired to dwell among his people. Well, again, the allusions continue because as we continue in verse 14, we read this. Not only did the word became flesh and dwell among us and we've seen his glory, but his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. First, let me look at those words, grace and truth. I'm going to come back to them because I think they're so important. Again, at one level, it's very clear. Grace and truth are qualities of God. But at another level, you understand that this is the allusion to Exodus 34. When Moses desired to see God's glory, God showed him his goodness, and God proclaimed his own name. In Exodus 34, verse 6, God said, The name of the Lord is, and then he said, Steadfast in love and faithfulness. It's Kesed and Emmet here. Aletheia and Charis, grace and truth. So the grace and truth that are in Jesus are the grace and truth that God has revealed himself as. God is grace and truth. Therefore, Jesus is grace and truth because the word makes God known. It's also a big deal to read that we have beheld God's glory. Do you remember what God told Moses when Moses wanted to see his glory? No one can see my glory and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and cover you there with my hand. I'll protect you from me, God is saying. And when I pass over you, you'll see just a glimpse of the afterglow of my glory. Because that's all you could handle and survive. And yet here, when God has become man, one can behold God's glory and live. Of course, because Christ has revealed it, and then removes the sin that has made us destroyed by seeing and perceiving it. Verse 14, the 
desire of Moses is actually only accomplished in God's unique, one-of-a-kind son. That phrase in verse 14, the only son from the father is interesting because in verses 12 and 13, he said, anyone who will receive him will become children of God. And yet this is God's unique, one-of-a-kind son. That same word, by the way, is used of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham already had Ishmael when he had Isaac, and yet Isaac is his unique, one-of-a-kind son of the promised son. In the same way, Jesus is God's unique, no one's the same as him, son, because he is the Word, and the Word is God. He reveals all that Jesus is. But now I told you I want to come back to these descriptors at the end in verse 14, because I think they're so important. Verse 14 says that God the Father, revealed through God the Son, is full of grace and truth. And I want to park here because the tension of holding these two qualities perfectly together is one of the things that makes God uniquely God. I think in our culture, we think that you can have grace or you can have truth. We think you can have one or you can have the other. We're not sure you can really have both without canceling the other out in some way. We might even say that to be gracious and to be truthful is a contradiction. But here they're presented as a perfect tension. Perhaps over your windows you have um, curtains, and I don't know if you've ever used a tension rod, but in order for the tension rod to work, it has to be perfectly lined at the same spot, and they have to have equal tension. I know this because mine have been pulled down by little ones. (laughs) So if they're not in tension, they don't stay. In the same way, God is full of, did, did you see that in the text? Full of grace and full of truth. Perfectly in tension, holding each other exactly where they ought to be. And no one else holds them perfectly in tension without in some way mitigating the other. See, if you have grace and you withhold truth, then what you're left with is flattery and shallow sentimentality because it's, it's no longer truthful. It's just deceptive and it's dishonest, which means it's actually no longer grace. And if you have truth and you take away grace from it, then what you have is crushing and destructive, and it's hopeless, and therefore it isn't even really truth anymore. But grace and truth intention is what God is. Truth without grace isn't really truth. And grace without truth isn't really grace. Now, I had an opportunity to understand this a little better. A week or so ago, my wife and I were blessed to be able to go out for an evening without our children and go out... And we were really excited about that. And, um, and Steph was trying on different outfits. And she gave me permission to tell this story. <laughs> As she was trying on different outfits, I, like I think the first one she had on, she said, hey, should I wear this outfit tonight? And to be candid, I immediately had two thoughts. My first was, what in our nearly 20 years of living together makes you think I will have a contribution to your fashion choice? <laughs> And the second thought I had is, we're going to be very late tonight. (laughs) 
But let me tell you, I just thinking through this, here's what would happen if you had either grace or truth. What if I responded just with grace, but I pulled truth out so it was dishonest and it was deceptive? Then I could have said something like this. Oh, that outfit? Yeah, that's by my favorite designer. What's his name again? Yeah. Or what if I had truth but pulled all the grace out of it? Then you'd be stuck with me saying something like, well, it just doesn't matter, which isn't exactly gracious or exactly truthful because, of course, it does. Now, if, by God's grace, I had (laughs) combined grace and truth perfectly, maybe it would have sounded something like this. Well, honestly, I have no eye or ability in the fashion realm, but I love you, and I'll offer any comments that could be helpful. Grace and truth together make God uniquely God. And I want you to see that here in the prologue, because throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see Jesus combining grace and truth in perfect tension in his message, in his ministry, and ultimately in his mission. In other words, whenever Jesus speaks truth, it is graceful truth. Whenever Jesus gives grace, it is truthful grace. Think of John 3, just to use a famous example. Whoever does not have the Son is condemned already because he is not believed on the name of the only Son. That's John 3, verse 18. That is truth. But it is graceful truth because the earlier part of the verse says, whoever has the Son has life. Because the earlier verse says, God so loved the world that he sent his Son, so whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Truthful grace and graceful truth are the hallmark of Christ and of those who know him. Now, verses 15 through 18 will show how Jesus, the word, makes God known. So verse 14 was the word became flesh, but now verses 15 through 18, the word makes God known. And first, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was the one of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Growing up, my cousin, who grew up more like a brother than a cousin, I am one month older than him. I was born in February, and he was born in March. And as a child, I held that over his head. (laughs) Now, John is at least six months older than Jesus, John the Baptist, in earthly human terms. And yet, John the Baptist will consistently testify that Jesus is before me. And that's a much bigger deal in an ancient Near Eastern culture where age and birth order are equated with honor and value. And yet, John is quick to say, No, Jesus is before me. He's pre existence and he's above me. He's preeminent. John is saying, Jesus is God. Now, verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Most of the time, what the Bible says in its original language is very easy to convey in English, and there's no reason for the interpreter to pause on it. This is one of those exceptions where the interpreter should pause on it because it doesn't convey super easily. Grace upon grace is kind of hard to take from Greek and put it in English. It's so hard that the early translation of the NIV translated it this way, One blessing after another. If that's correct, then what the phrase means is, when you know Jesus, it's inexhaustible grace. That is certainly true, by the way. 
but probably not what verse 16 is saying. And that's why the new NIV has actually corrected themselves. And now the NIV writes this, grace in place of grace already given. Do you see the difference? The first translation is trying to say it's inexhaustible grace. The second translation is saying, no, we've already been given grace, but now this is greater grace that replaces it. With that in mind, read verse 17, and I think now you'll understand it. For the law was given through Moses, which was grace. But grace and truth, greater grace, replacing it, came through Jesus Christ. Do you see? Does it make sense now? Here's why I'm parking on this. You could say, Josh, why take a moment on this? Because if we think that the law is a bad thing, then we'll think that God is at least in part a bad person. But it's very important to understand that the law is a gift. That everything God is and everything God does is always good. God's guidance is good. God's counsel is good. God's instruction, his statutes are all perfect and right. The law is grace. It's just that Christ is greater grace that replaces the grace already given. The law given through Moses is like a car that depreciates the moment it comes off the car lot. It's fading in its glory and in its purpose. But Christ is an investment that only increases in its value. His glory cannot fade. It is forever. He is the lamp and the light and the sun. It's vital that you understand that God's guidance is not a bad thing. God's guidance is a good thing. All of his guidance is wise and good and true. The reason the law, though, is something that needed to fade is because the law demanded what it did not give power to accomplish. The law required what it could not help you fulfill. All the law could accomplish then, in effect, was revealing to us just how short we fall of the glory of God. But what Christ does is the exact opposite. He not only shows us what we ought to be, he gives us what he is. He fulfills the demands that he also offers. This makes him greater grace. Because he is grace not just to tell us what we should be, but grace to actually give it to us. Now, verse 17, I want you to notice one other thing here that's so interesting. The law was given through Moses. So the law is a mediated set of instructions. But grace and truth, where do we see that phrase before? Verse 14. And it was describing the Father. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? The law has been replaced with a person. For many, many centuries, if you wanted to know God's character, you had to read law, commands, regulation. Now, if you want to know God's heart, his character, his essence, you look at a person, you look at Jesus. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. To know God means to know him through his perfect revelation, his perfect word, his son, Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you must know this person. You must know Jesus, where grace and truth are perfectly held in tension. In his message, in his ministry, but culminatingly, 
in his mission at the cross. Because at the cross, God is so truthful, he's so righteous, he's so faithful that he takes sin and wickedness seriously. But at the cross, God is so gracious, he's so merciful, he's so compassionate, he's so good that he is willing to accept his son's substitute in place of any who put their trust in him. At the cross, grace and truth are perfectly held in tension. And we receive it. We receive, as verse 16 says, grace instead of grace when we receive Jesus. So that's the first admonition I have for you. I just want you to notice that if you have your Bible open, you'll see in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now verse 16, do you see the same word? We have all received Thus, one receives all of these blessings by receiving Jesus. See, the law is limited and narrow and unable to produce its demands. So, friend, have you been trying to have a relationship with God based on your performance and rule-keeping? You can't. You can only have one by receiving Christ, who is the grace and truth embodied who has fulfilled and replaced the greater grace because only Christ gives grace to fulfill the law's demands. Only Christ gives grace to forgive the lawbreaker. Only Christ gives grace to empower our inability. Only Christ gives grace to overcome sin and death with life and love. And the Bible shocks us when it says we don't earn it, we don't contribute to it, we receive it with open and empty hands and hearts. So receive it. So I'm going to press on that and give three concluding applications. Here's the first. Christianity is not a set of ethical principles. Christianity is a person. Have you met him? Do you know him? Have you received him? I'm not asking you what you do or how you live. Those are not unimportant but those are not the bullseye, and they're not what the text says. Throughout the Gospels, many people will come up to Jesus and say things like this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus will try to help them see, You cannot do something to inherit eternal life. You receive me to receive eternal life. These things were written so that you would believe in the name of the Son of God and that by believing in Him, you would have life in His name. Christianity is not something you do. It is someone you receive. Receive Jesus. Love Him. Let Him guide you then in the way to live. But make no mistake, our trust is always in Him and His life. All right, number two. Permit yourself to feel wonder and joy because the Word became flesh. In 2016, the New York Times wrote a front-page article noting that the United States suicide rate had hit an all-time high. It had increased over 24% over the last 15 years before that. They brought in several experts to try to understand why the suicide rate was climbing, and these experts found that they couldn't come to consensus on factors because in the socioeconomic status and the sociodemographic status, there was no clear reason 
related to joblessness or hate crimes or anything that had a connective tissue. So finally, Robert Putman, a professor of public policy at Harvard, decided that maybe the best way they could describe how people were feeling was to use the word hopelessness. A few days before that, the New York Times also had a book review where they were asking people why it seems like in contemporary fiction, the way we use the arts and entertainment, why those things have a similar feel. And one of the authors, Ayana Mathis, said this, today's authors making movies and art and literature and novels are flummoxed by joy. They seem to have decided that despair, alienation, and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. In our ennui and end-of-days malaise, we are suspicious of the fullness of life. That is so interesting that Here these authors are saying, well, we're flummoxed by joy. We have no category for it. And we don't really believe in the fullness of life. And yet in this very gospel, Jesus will say, I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Here at Christmas, when you feel those tinglings of wonder, that desire to see things really be true, I want you to remember that the word really did become flesh. God punched a hole between the concrete wall that separates the real from the ideal. See, we've had centuries of legends and stories that express the human longing for myth to become fact, but John 1 verse 14 says, it really happened. The word became flesh. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, wrote a really excellent article on why we need fantasy, we need fantasy works. And here's what he wrote in it. The gospel is the underlying reality and truth that all our good stories glimpse, but the gospel has actually broken into history. It's exactly what John 1 verse 14 is telling us. So friend, that joy that you feel at the end of a great novel that wonder you have at the end of a beautiful play, that longing you have at the end of a movie, it fades when the back cover closes or when the curtain drops or when the end credits roll and you walk out and you think, wouldn't it be great if that was real? John 1 is saying, actually, it is. It's just even better than you've ever known. So now the final application. And this is mainly at Christians and it's it's at me and I... I've been pressed on it this week as I was thinking about this. These authors that God has breathed out his word through, when they write about seeing Jesus, they are thrilled with it. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. It it is the center of their life. It is the heartbeat of their greatest affections. It is such a big deal that Peter will write this in 1 Peter 1. To those of us who didn't see Jesus personally, he'll say in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, the completion of your salvation. So here's what's been pressed to me. Have you been so happy that it actually hurt a little? Maybe you have a moment with your spouse, a moment with your children, a moment they're doing something that makes you so proud, so happy, so thankful. It's almost like your heart 
could burst. I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon where he said that God's wonder had made his heart so joyful that he was feeling so physically overwhelmed by it, he almost wanted God to pull back. In John 15, verse 11, Jesus will say, These things have I spoken to you so that your joy may be full. So I just wonder if you know what it's like to feel that way about Jesus. Or maybe if you used to. You used to know what it was like to think on the cross and just be broken but thankful. You used to know what it was like to spend time with Christ in his word or to spend time in prayer. And it was like you, you just never wanted to leave. You wanted to stay right there forever. You have seen God's glory, full of grace and truth, in the only begotten Son. Maybe you haven't felt that way in a long time. So a couple pastoral encouragements to you if you haven't felt that joy in a while. The first thing, just admit that you haven't felt that joy in a while and bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, I know the word became flesh and you want to dwell among us, so I know it's not your fault that I've lost that. God, have I become so distracted that I no longer behold Jesus' glory? God, have I become so resentful and self-pitying that this certain thing didn't go the way I wanted, that I no longer have a heart that longs for you? Am I living in disobedience or just cynical despair, and so I no longer have the joy of the Lord? I want to encourage you at Christmas, not just to admit it, but by God's grace to remove those obstacles that we put between our heart and his. These writers say that we beheld his glory and that filled their hearts with joy. And may it fill ours too. Let's pray together this morning. God, as a Christian myself, I'm an imperfect disciple, so I come with my brothers and sisters. We are all imperfect disciples. Perhaps our joy in the Lord has waxed and waned, and maybe today the Holy Spirit was reminding us of what it was once like to feel such a gladness that you couldn't even keep it in. And I know it's hard to admit our own failure and our own sin, but give us the grace to do that, the grace to say, it's hard for me to admit it, Lord, I, I've become cold-hearted. But even if that's hard at first, it's endlessly worse to deny it. So give us the honesty to bring to you what has kept us from joy in the Lord. Or perhaps someone this morning has not actually come to receive Jesus. Perhaps they thought Christianity was a set of things you do or instructions you follow. And they've watched movies, they've read books that they thought, man, that'd be great if that was real. But they didn't know that the ideal has become real. And this morning, I pray that they would simply do what John says to do, receive Jesus and receive grace upon grace. Lord, thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ gives us his life. He died our death. He rose victoriously. He has everything that we will ever need. We simply receive him and rest in him. Assure us through what Christ has done as we receive him again. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally. 
pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.